Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're having a chat about the history of birth control. We're going to go all the way back to the ancient world, many thousands of years ago, right through to today, uh, in the modern era and the 21st century. Look, birth control's been around bloody long time, long, long time. It's been around. You know, this isn't going to surprise you. Kids are kids are paying the ass at the best of times, and unwanted pregnancies, pregnancies even more so. Um, so people have used all sorts of solutions with, with varying degrees of effectiveness, as we'll find out, uh, over the centuries, over the millennia, in order to uh, prevent unwanted pregnancies. Um, and today, we're going to hear about all of them. Um, this was a topic suggestion from Megan Simpson. Uh, nepotism at its finest, as she's my girlfriend and didn't even have to use you know the contact form at halfhousehistory.net in order to suggest this topic. Um, in any case, thanks, Megan, mate. Good on you. bit... A little bit worried about the fact that you've got me researching birth control, to be honest. Not sure exactly what to make of that, but, you know, whatever, we'll, we'll, we'll go with it. Anyway, today we're going to talk about everything from uh, from pessaries made from crocodile turds to the modern uh, oral contraceptive pill, which, as far as I know, doesn't make use of crocodile turds. And uh, we'll pause briefly to talk about some significant technological breakthroughs when it comes to birth control and also significant cultural breakthroughs as well. This is a you know, it's a pretty fraught topic for many even today, so we'll have a chat about some of that. But society progresses and marches on, however slowly it seems to at times, and today we live in a world where birth control is relatively safe, relatively relatively reliable, and uh, doesn't involve sticking a great whack of uh, crocodile poo-poo up your fanny, so that's certainly a win. Um, and uh, before we begin, I feel it probably is uh, is worth mentioning here. You know, while of course I'll handle everything that we discuss in this episode in in a very uh, appropriate, very measured, and uh, and very mature manner, uh, there's a fair bit of Willie and Fanny chat today. So uh, you know, I, I guess just keep that in mind. You consider yourself to be duly warned that uh, there there's a lot of sort of grown folks talk on this episode. And um, if any kids are listening, of course, as I always say, wait till mum and or dad aren't around and, uh, you know, come back and listen to it later because, geez, you will learn some stuff here. Anyway, let's get to it. Let's get underway, kick off our overview of the history of birth control. Here we go. Going all the way back here, going all the way back to uh, around 1550 BCE, this is over three and a half thousand years ago here, to ancient Egypt. Now, it's around then that a certain medical document, the Ebers Papyrus, uh, was written. It's known as the Ebers Papyrus today. They probably didn't call it that back then, but that's what we know it as these days. Now, it is filled with knowledge of various herbal remedies, one of which, of course, is information about a certain contraceptive. Now, birth control methods, uh, even then, even three and a half thousand years ago, been been around a lot longer, a lot longer than 1550 BCE, of course. Uh, people love rooting each other, but didn't always you know, want, a, want a new sprog each time. But... Details of ancient contraceptives are a little thin on the ground at times. We know that in ancient Mesopotamian societies, women would use small stones to try to block their cervixes. And I can't say I've ever experienced such a thing, but I also can't imagine that it would be very pleasant. Um, anyway, as I say, details a little thin on the ground prior to some of the written records from ancient Egypt. So that's where this story begins properly. Uh, this papyrus I mentioned, the Ebers papyrus, it's known, uh, it, it's, a, it's a long document, right? 110 pages uh, for a total length of about, of about 20 metres. Um, and it contains a, a very thorough record of ancient Egyptian knowledge of herbal remedies and medicines. Some of it, you know, reasonable and reliable and some of it, well, some of it is just magic spells and jiggery-pokery, basically. But one of the remedies outlined in the Ebers Papyrus is indeed a contraceptive. It instructs you 
to make a paste out of acacia, dates, and honey, and smear this all over a bit of wool and use it as a pessary, the thing that you insert in, you know, into, into the vagina. Now, acacia crops up a lot as an ancient contraceptive, and with good reason. It's a spermicide. It's a natural spermicide, and it's still used today in modern contraceptive uh, substances like, uh, like spermicidal jelly. Acacia gum is, uh, is also suggested in another ancient medical text from Egypt, the Cahoon Gynecological Papyrus. Uh, and while the Egyptians may have been on the money with acacia, eh, some of the stuff in these old texts... Yeah, not so much to put it, uh, you know, to put it mildly. The, uh, you know, the, the Ebers Papyrus, for example, it suggests that the heart carried around all of the body's fluids, uh, blood, tears, even semen. So they, they didn't quite get every single thing right, even if they, you know, were on the money with acacia there. Uh, in fact, a lot of these old quote-unquote medical texts they just had a lot of hocus pocus in them, you know, nonsense magic spells, that sort of thing. With uh, you know, with a few actual treatments interspersed between all the all the nonsense nonsense uh, superstition and stuff. For example, there were some legitimate treatments. Ancient Egyptians figured out how to treat uh, an infection of the uh, the parasitic guinea worm. Yeah, what you do, you get uh, you get the end of the worm that's protru- it's it's very gross. I'm not going to the I mean, that, we're not talking about the history of guinea worm infections here because it's super, super gross. But basically, when the worm starts to poke out of the wound, right? What you and that's how that's the beginning of how gross it is. Um, you you grab its ass, you grab the end that's sticking out. Might be its ass, might be its head. There's no way. There's no way to tell. You know, you can you can you can put in a bowl of flour and wait till it farts. But as Carl Pilkington asks, what if it coughs? <laughs> you uh, anyway. So you can yeah. So you get the you get the worm. You put it around. You wrap it around the stick. And then you you wind the stick, you you wind the worm out over the stick, almost like you know you, you're spooling thread. Um, and uh, three and a half thousand years ago, this is how ancient Egyptians figured out how to treat guinea worm disease. And three and a half thousand years later, today, this is still how we treat guinea worm disease. So they certainly got some stuff right. They certainly got some stuff right in some of these medical texts. There's you know a lot, lot of nonsense in there, but they did get uh, they they were uh, they were correct about a few things. Uh, similarly, the 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 Edwin Smith papyrus, right? This long text on surgery. It explains how to treat. Uh, or operate on almost 50 different wounds and injuries, most of which you'd expect to see on a battlefield. It's, it's actually thought that the Edwin Smith papyrus was, uh, it's widely considered to be a military surgeon's guide. Um, but uh, but whatever it is, right, you've, you've got to give the ancient Egyptians credit because, uh, you know, some of the ideas, some of the, this guide was, this guide, was, it was filled with all sorts of advice that was, that was well ahead of its time. Stuff like uh, ways to stitch together open wounds, uh, how to use honey as a disinfectant, not moving people who'd suffered spinal injuries. You know, considering that other medical texts at the time were, you know, as I say, filled with magic spells, the Edward Smith papyrus is actually, you know, Quite impressively accurate, considering <laughs> considering the, the the competition it's up against. Anyway, um, these ancient Egyptian texts they do show us that even all the way back then, you know, three and a half thousand years ago, people were trying to prevent unwanted pregnancies. You know that 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 is that is one thing that cropped up in a lot of these old texts, um, and and also that they were doing it with some measure of effectiveness because in addition to the pessaries that were made with acacia and whatever else, right, there were a range of other other methods that the Egyptians used uh, and recorded, uh, and and some of them were a little more. Um, out there, I guess you could say, diplomatically. For instance, some texts made reference to using a, a gum-like substance to just block up the cervix altogether. So I don't know how that would have gone. Um, or mixing honey and soda ash together and filling your fanny up with that. Um, additionally, another method that was used uh, was prolonging lactation after childbirth. This is another way to prevent pregnancies, apparently. Uh, and some Egyptian w- women did this for up to three years in order to avoid getting pregnant again. And of course, I mean, you know, this is what you've all been waiting for. I know you can't skip over the fact that many ancient Egyptian women would 
stuff. Crocodile turds up their fannies. Um, uh, the idea was that they would, um, they would, you know, th- so the, the turds would be dried out, right? Then, it, then that'd be inserted. And the idea is that they would then soften and and form a barrier that would prevent sperm from from getting through. Now, you may laugh at this. You know, we, we have a good giggle about stuff like this these days. But there is another way to look at this. Another way to look at this altogether because. It might have actually been a very, very effective contraceptive indeed, right? Imagine this, right? Imagine this. You're a bloke. Back in ancient Egypt, having a great time, you just picked up this smoking hottie, right? You're going to go take her home. You're going get, to get get down to business, right? And then you discover, you get a kid off, you discover that she's got a fanny full of crocodile turds. Mate, I would go so far to say that it would have been an incredibly effective contraceptive as not only would it stop sperm from entering the uterus, it would also stop any sperm from ever leaving your balls, mate, because you're never going anywhere near that whole situation, are you? So, I mean, crocodile turds may be actually, a, you know, a very good way to stave off unwanted pregnancies uh, or just g- general any kind of attention whatsoever. Anyway, as we move from ancient Egypt into uh, into the classical period, into, into ancient Greece and Rome here, it's interesting to see how birth control methods developed as the years went on. Because, you know, no doubt these methods that were used in Greece and Rome were influenced by what had come before them. Don't forget, you know, ancient Egypt was to them what they are to us in many cases. They were an ancient civilization, but they, they, they did inform uh, people's uh, people's cultures and habits and, and, and knowledge and whatever else. Uh, the, the, the Greeks, the Romans, they used pessaries, they used gums, whatever else, just like the Egyptians. But they also had some absolutely wild techniques, which would have offered um, varied levels of effectiveness, I think it's fair to say. Check this out, right? So Aristotle, the famous philosopher, you've heard of him, he suggested, right, that women should squirt some cedar oil inside themselves before a shag. And his reason for this was that the slipperiness and the smoothness of the oil would prevent any sperm from reaching the womb. Now, Aristotle, mate, look, very clever bloke, obviously, but they're not bloody cartoon characters on, on banana peels, are they? These sperm, you know, they're not going to slip over and, and fall humorously to the ground. I mean, funnily enough, it actually may have worked. Not for, not for the reasons he thought, but um, the gum, the, sorry, the, the oil may have actually gummed up the cervix enough to prevent sperm from entering the uterus. So, I mean, I, good work, Aristotle, I guess. I guess you were right after a fashion in that way as well. Anyway, there was also the idea that drinking a, a copper chemical salt uh, solution could, um, could prevent pregnancy for, you know, for up to a year. And I'll tell you what, it could do it for a lot longer than that sometimes because in certain cases it just potentially bloody kill you, uh, which, again, in fairness to whoever came up with it, means that unwanted pregnancies are unlikely to be an issue anymore. So I suppose in the strictest sense of the, uh, you know, uh, if, if we're going to be very literal about it, it does stop unwanted pregnancies, although not in the way that you, you know, potentially would want. But my favourite Greek ancient Greek technique, certainly not the most effective, but certainly the, the most entertaining one here, uh, was uh, it's what one source characterised as the squat and sneeze, which makes me wonder if it had uh, such a catchy, uh, you know, catchy name two thousand years ago as well. But the squat and sneeze, right? The squat and sneeze involved, well, I mean, it, it involved exactly what you'd think. After rolling off the wet patch, a woman would squat and then sneeze. And um, if she couldn't sneeze, then she would jump up and down on the spot and let gravity do the work. Now this does. Um, not work, uh, I shouldn't have to tell you, you know, I know money can be tight sometimes, but please don't stop buying dingers or taking your pill because you heard on a tin pot podcast about the squat and sneeze method that ancient Greeks used 2000 years ago. It will, it will not work. Um, it has not been vindicated by modern medical science as, as an effective birth control measure. And as we'll discuss, you know, later on the episode, there are 
much better ways to prevent unwanted unwanted pregnancies these days. Um, but one measure that uh, back then uh, may have been much more effective than the old squat and sneeze uh, was a plant known as silphium, which is a type of giant fennel. Now it was quite rare; it only grew on a uh, on a small strip of the of, of the coast of what's modern day Libya. And despite many attempts to make it grow in other places, it was never cultivated anywhere else successfully at all. So it only grew in this very small part of the world. Uh, and it was mainly sought after as a spice for seasoning and cooking. Uh, it's made reference to very often in ancient Greek, ancient Roman recipes. But it was also thought to have a range of medicinal uses as well for coughs and colds and sore throats and fevers and even stuff like warts. And additionally, it may have actually been effective as a contraceptive and perhaps even as an abortifacient, right? But here's the thing. We don't know. And why don't we know, I hear you ask? Well, because the plant is extinct. It was so popular and so sought after for all of these reasons that it was quickly over-harvested. And because, of course, it didn't grow anywhere else, before the end of the first century CE, it had gone extinct. I mean, we know that it existed for sure. It's depicted on coins written about in literature from, you know, from the time. So we have some idea of what it looked like and what it did, but it no longer exists anywhere on Earth, and so we can't actually test it. We can't test its uh, it, its efficacy as a, you know, as a, well, never mind, as a, as a spice or as a, uh, as a seasoning, certainly not. Not as a um, certainly not as a contraceptive. Anyway, silphium wasn't the only plant that was used in the classical world as a contraceptive. However, uh, ancient doctors compiled long lists of various plants that were said to work as contraceptives. One of which, I mean, a lot of them didn't work. A lot of them were just nonsense. But one, one certainly did and still does. A plant we know today as Queen Anne's lace, it's still used in some parts of the world today as a contraceptive. So the ancient Greek and Roman world. They, got, they had something of an idea, it has to be said. They did have something of an idea, but of course, we've still got a very long way to go yet. So let's turn our attention now eastward, eastward from the Mediterranean. We're going to have a chat about some of the methods and techniques used in, used in Asia throughout history. In ancient China, as far back as the 7th century BCE, so long, long time here, uh, there are records of uh, coitus reservatus, right? So the bloke not finishing. Uh, this was used as a way to prevent pregnancy. Obviously, it wasn't fail-safe. Obviously, it wasn't a lot of fun either. But this was uh, this was one of the more, I guess, traditional approaches to uh, to preventing unwanted pregnancies, right? But uh, the fact that it wasn't uh, well, it kind of defeated the purpose of a lot of the the whole the, the whole you know business to begin with. There, and, and people did look for other other um, methods. But it is interesting to see. It's interesting to see that. Uh, uh, that was recorded as, as you know, something that people did back then. But uh, a more fail-safe method was, <laughs> I mean, from, again, a certain point of view, was the one prescribed by the ancient Chinese doctor Sun Simiao, right, who uh, is known to Chinese history as the king of medicine. Uh, he, wrote, uh, he wrote books about this, and in one of them, uh, Sun, he laid out thousands of different remedies and treatments for all sorts of maladies and illnesses and afflictions. And, of course, you know, naturally, he had something to say about birth control as well. And Sun's treatment involved boiling mercury and oil together. And according to some sources, you chuck a couple of tadpoles in there just for good measure and drinking the whole thing down. And if this concoction worked, good news. You don't have to worry about getting pregnant. Not now or in fact ever again, because you're now infertile. And if the concoction didn't work at all, well, I mean, still good news because you don't have to worry about getting pregnant. Not now or in fact ever because you're dead of, you know, kidney or liver failure. Again, once again, I suppose it solves the problem of unwanted pregnancies. So thanks for that, son, old mate. 
Um, we move now from China to ancient India, where on the subcontinent people used pessaries, like the ones we've talked about, as well as potions made of red chalk, powdered palm leaf, that sort of thing. And uh, sort of, you know, as you can see, we're building up a, a pretty clear picture. The herbal remedies were very popular. And while details on many of them are, are a little scant, there's no doubt that women used them for centuries and centuries, long time. Uh, and what we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit uh, in, in greater detail here. Uh, move over now to the Middle East. As we move towards the medieval period, there's more details, uh, there's more documentation of, of various other techniques, uh, some, you know, all too close to ones that we've already talked about. For example, uh, around the turn of the, ten- of the 10th century CE, a Persian doctor whose name was Muhammad ibn Zakaria al-Razi, uh, he wrote about the various pessaries that were used at the time, and if you believe it, it wasn't just crocodile turds that have been historically used, uh, in, you know, harvested for these pessaries. Uh, it turns out that Persian women were sticking elephant jobbies up their business as well. Uh, he talked about pessaries made from cabbage and pitch as you know, well as elephant poo and how they could even be combined, although, again, I don't know how well they worked outside of just grossing out any potential blokes that might have been looking for a route. Um, there are a stack of other contraceptive methods that were believed to be effective, most weren't, uh, you know, this included stuff like whacking rock salt up there, which once again, I can only imagine wouldn't be all that nice. But there are, you know, relatively detailed records from from around the world, a lot of written history about, uh, you know, the, the way that um, birth control contraceptive uh, methods were, were approached or, uh, or attempted. And uh, as we move now, I mean, look, there's something you'll sort of you'll you'll notice about all of the uh, all of the methods that we've talked about right as as we move into uh, the the middle ages the, the medieval period and, and, and into europe you'll notice that more or less every method that we've talked about so far it's involved the woman doing something to prevent herself falling pregnant and not the man doing something to stop his part in the whole affair you know now how very how very truly shocking it is to have history foist this problem onto women who bear 100% of the consequences of pregnancy but only 50% of the responsibility and you know in many cases much less than 50% unfortunately but nowhere is this imbalance more evident than when looking at birth control in medieval Europe? Because during this period, you know, as it was before and after, women had to, uh, they had to, of course, slog through the very worst injustices uh, across all, you know, all facets of society. But examining birth control gives us some very interesting insights into the way that women dealt with this inequity at this period, right? Different cultures have held different views and perspectives on contraception and birth control throughout history, of course. And as we move into medieval Europe, there's one culture that utterly dominates not just conversations surrounding birth control, but more or less every facet of social life during this period. The Catholic Church and its teachings were an inescapable part of daily life for medieval Europeans. And let me tell you, these teachings were not friendly to women who sought to avoid unwanted pregnancies. I mean, even today, hundreds of years later, the Catholic Church is still an archaic, backwards-thinking disaster of an institution, particularly when it comes to reproduction. And to be frank, wasn't all that different back then. The Church forbade the use of contraceptives, abortifacients, or anything else that would get in the way of a natural pregnancy. And this was, you will not be surprised to learn, very, very bad for women's health in general, as it forced birth control underground into a world that was hidden from the prying eyes of, essentially, men. The men who, largely speaking, wrote history. 
This means that we don't have the best idea of birth control methods within medieval Europe as they weren't particularly well recorded given their taboo nature under the oppression of the church. And I was talking before about uh, about the reliance of many women throughout history on herbal remedies. There are historians who have suggested that, medi- that, that you know medieval European women, they had a flourishing underground support network to look after one another in the case of unwanted pregnancies with knowledge of these, these medicines, herbal remedies, whatever else, treatments being passed down by word of mouth from mother to daughter. Now, there isn't the hugest body of evidence to support this. Many other historians don't give the idea of this secret clandestine centuries-long movement to uh, facilitate secret abortions under the nose of the Catholic Church, much, much credence. But again, we don't have all that much decisive evidence either way. What we certainly do know is that medieval European women did have some methods that they used to prevent or deal with unwanted pregnancies, such as using lily root and rue or, or just having the bloke pull out again, which is not a particularly effective way to do it or, or safe way to do things. Unfortunately, however, the church's strict teachings often just led to infanticide. Newborn infants, they were killed, they were abandoned, or those who were dealt with a little more mercifully were just given up to convents or monasteries. Any way you look at it, it was not a pleasant state of affairs for women in medieval Europe. I mean, that's true no matter which lens you examine the time through. But, you know, when it comes to birth control and reproduction, there was even more stigma and even more punishment than there had been in other older societies that even predated, you know, medieval Europe, as I've said. So certainly was a very difficult time uh, to attempt to exercise anything in the way of reproductive rights as a woman in, uh, in medieval Europe. But now as we move out of the medieval era and into the early modern and modern period, an exciting new piece of technology is on the horizon. This piece of technology would become known as the condom. Although we don't really know the origin of the word, we don't know where it came from. There are some vague suggestions of, of a Latin etymology, but largely it remains a mystery where the word condom came from. And this is quite fitting, because much of the early history of the condom itself is, is, is also a mystery. There are some scant suggestions of the use of primitive condoms in ancient and medieval times, but there's not a lot of supporting evidence, and it's, it's widely held that they only really properly emerged as we head into the Renaissance and the, and the early modern periods. But... I'll tell you this, right? Before you start imagining, you know, bloody Leonardo da Vinci, da Vinci walking around with a Jirex on the end of his knob, that they did not look anything like the latex dingers that we use today. You know, bloody rib for her pleasure. No, no, no. The first things that you could really call condoms were very small. They were designed only to cover the the, the end of the knob, right? Right, 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 you know, the bell end there, uh, rather than go all the way down the shaft. Now, you're probably imagining sort of a tiny little rubber thimble type thing, but think again, vulcanized rubber, it's centuries away, mate. So we're not we're not talking about this sort of thing. In China, they used silk paper that had been oiled or lamb intestines, right? Right. Whereas in Japan, they used get this, right? They used bits of the shell of a tortoise or even hollowed out animal horns. Imagine that. I mean, it certainly gives a new meaning to the word horny, doesn't it? There's, a, there's good reason that the condom actually caught on in the way that it did. And, and the condom's origin story actually has a lot less to do with its role as a contraceptive and much more to do with its role in staving off sexually transmitted infections. At the beginning of the 16th century, there were massive outbreaks of syphilis that devastated people across Europe and Asia. And it was this, rather than birth control, that led to the widespread use of condoms. Men would wrap the ends of their willies up in, uh, in chemically treated linen to try to avoid getting the disease. They'd tie them off with little ribbon. Um, and according to records from the time, uh, these little sort of proto-Johnnies did actually quite a reasonable job, right? 
And things then develop further from there. Lamb intestine, which I mentioned already been used in parts of China, whatever else, it had also been used in glove making. And it wasn't long before it was adapted uh, to make condoms as well that actually covered the entire knob, not just the end of it. And with this, voila, you've invented the condom. The earliest recovered examples of these things dates back to the 1640s, where they were found in old cesspits and privies. So that proves that men have been irresponsibly disposing of used dingers for 400 years at the very least. But check this out. As I said before, they weren't used principally as a birth control device. No, no. This was just a side effect. Their main purpose was to stave off STIs. Preventing pregnancy was still seen as the woman's responsibility. And, and, you know, these blokes wrapping up their knobs like this, it was just to prevent them from getting syphilis or, or, or whatever else happened to be going around. But as a result, right, as a result of the, uh, of the development of, and, 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 the, and the, the proliferation of the condom, plenty of people railed against the moral repugnancy of, of the effects of, of this new device. They, they said that it, you know, it was leading to the collapse of decent society, encouraging casual sex, preventing natural pregnancies. But people wanted to shag. People wanted to shag, and so the condom won out. As we move now into the 18th century, condoms became a little more developed, more advanced, and a lot more comfortable to whack on your old fellow there. Uh, However, they were expensive and they certainly weren't infallible as they were sometimes very poorly made and they'd break. And, you know, as you can imagine, this didn't help their cause in the eyes of the pearl-clutching moralists who never stopped crusading against them, didn't help matters at all. But nonetheless, the steady march of human progress continued. And in the 19th century, in 1839, Charles Goodyear invented vulcanized rubber. In 1855, just 16 years later, the very first rubber condom was produced and it caught on very, very quickly. People up until this point had been using condoms essentially made out of animal intestines, usually lamb intestines there. But this was the, this was the brand new big thing, the rubber condom. And would you like to know one of the main selling points of rubber condoms? Get ready, because you are never, ever going to be able to forget this once I etch it into your brain, right? This this will change your perspective of condoms forever. You'll never be able to look at a dinger the same way ever again, right? Because initially, rubber condoms were sold, and very successfully, I might add, they were sold as being reusable. Oh, yes. Just rinse it off, give it a wipe, and you are ready to get right back in there. No worries at all. Can you imagine? But it doesn't even stop there. The origin story of condoms is so wild, right? Because check this out. Early rubber condoms, they not only were they marketed as reusable, right? They also had to be made to measure which meant that if, there wasn't a sort of one-size-fits-all type thing that we have today. No, if you wanted to buy a condom, you had to go to the doctor, get your tackle out, have your doodle measured, right? And then they would make one specifically for your measurements. You would, you'd bloody hope it's not a cold day on, you know, when you head off to the appointment, wouldn't you? My goodness. Eventually over this, you know, this ridiculous origin story, it settled down a little bit. And by the time we approach the 20th century, they're manufacturing, you know, sensible one-size-fits-all dingers available for sale over the counter at pharmacies, no worries. And I was very interested to learn, right, about condoms, something that is sort of even 
you know relevant to them today, you will have noticed that as sort of as a matter of course, while talking about these things, I've been using a bunch of different uh, nicknames, euphemisms for them, right? You know, dingers, johnnies, whatever else, and of course everyone does this. But this isn't new. Oh, even you know, well over a hundred years ago, back in the in the late nineteenth century, uh, early twentieth century, there were all sorts of euphemisms that people certainly not as colourful, maybe a little more diplomatic, but people didn't call them what they were even back then when they were going and buying buying them over the counter. Some of the terms they had back then, I mean, check check this out, right? They'd often be rather, you know, there, there were some rather sanitary ways of referring to them. They'd be called things like a male shield or a rubber good. But my favourite. Is uh, is a euphemism that that uh, that picked up some steam in England in the late nineteenth century. Condoms were referred to as a little something for the weekend, which is just absolutely brilliant. It's so so good. Anyway, not everyone was on board with this new invention. Of course, were they? No. The all the all the sanctimonious moralizers they leapt astride their hobby horses and complained about the downfall of society, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And in the U.S. in particular. Uh, a series of laws known as the Comstock Laws prohibited the sale of many uh, lewd and lascivious goods or articles of immoral use, as they were known, uh, as the law put them, uh, which hampered the sale of condoms across the country. But here's a really interesting thing. There was another group of people, right, who were also vocal opponents to the condom, and it might surprise you to learn who they were. As I mentioned before, condoms principally came about as a way to stave off STIs back, in, you know, back from the old syphilis outbreaks from the centuries previous. And throughout history, contraception and birth control was almost universally considered the responsibility of the woman, not the man. And uh, to begin with, of course, the condom didn't really change that. But eventually, it did, of course, as they became cheaper, more accessible, further widespread, until by the end of the 19th century, they were the most common form of birth control. And do you know who had a problem with this? many emerging feminist groups. Some feminists argued that putting contraceptive responsibility in the hands of men with condoms was disempowering for women and said that women should remain in control of their own contraceptive methods. Now, this is a very interesting argument because obviously I'd always thought that, you know, sharing the responsibility for something like this would be a good thing for all involved. But the logic behind this take isn't easy to dismiss. Still, the objectives of, uh, of everyone from religious purists to outraged moralists and hardline feminists, they did, did nothing to curb the rise of the condom. And after the invention of latex in 1920, the modern condom as we know it, as we know it today, it was born and has remained enormously popular ever since as both, of course, the way to stop the spread of STIs and as a contraceptive. But as we head into the 20th century, with contraceptives such as, you know, as condoms now widely available, much of the stigma attached to their use began to fade, although of course not completely. But with the benefits of birth control becoming more and more obvious on a societal level, you've got lower birth rates, women remaining in the workforce and marrying later, uh, poor families having fewer children to care for, etc., all these sorts of things, birth control became more and more normalised as time went on. So much so that, in fact, in 1916, the world's very first birth control clinic was founded in the US. There was actually a, you know, a brick-and-mortar premises set up for this exact purpose, which lasted nine days, so it wasn't, you know, that normalized that quickly. But, um, uh, you know, after this very brief nine-day period of, of the world having its first ever uh, birth control clinic, it was another five years before an actual permanent one that lasted was established in 1921 in Britain, where it was opened by a woman who, whose name was Marie Stopes. Now, during the 1920s, public attitudes towards birth control began to, began to shift quite significantly, in no small part thanks to Stopes herself. 
Uh, and it wasn't just because of her clinic that she set up in 1921 either. She wrote a book, Ma- Ma- Marie Stopes, she wrote a book called Married Love. And it was one of the first ever pieces of literature to openly address the topic of birth control. Uh, you know, further breaking down some of the taboos surrounding the topic. Also dealt with a, a range of other things, you know, to do with uh, maintaining a, a long and happy marriage and, you know, sexual communication, all that sort of stuff as well. Very interesting book indeed. I mean, Stopes was and still is a, a, quite a controversial figure even today. Uh, but her book was enormously influ- influential and it changed the public discourse on this sort of thing forever. Because in the wake of, uh, of what Stopes is doing, and, you know, countless other people beside her, um, a more formal approach to sex education began with famous birth control campaigners like Stella Brown giving speaking tours, uh, teaching women about these issues, as, as well as women's health more broadly. And very significantly, too, uh, medical abortions began to be decriminalized in parts of the world from around the 1930s onwards. And, of course, there has been a slow and steady march towards uh, the legalization of procedures like this. Although, of course, you know, even today, it's an issue that unfortunately hasn't yet been put to bed as it, as, as it should be. It was also in the 1930s, it wasn't just medical abortions, and in the 1930s, a very important decade for birth control because it was around this time that scientists began to make very big breakthroughs in the area of hormone research, making discoveries about the hormonal inhibition of ovulation. Unfortunately, the idea of a, of a hormonal contraceptive took a long time to catch on, and it wasn't actually until the 1950s uh, that enough interest and resources were accrued for work to begin in earnest. But in the coming years, in the 50s, Tireless work was done by scientists such as Gregory Pincus, uh, Min Chue Chang, John Rock, supported by campaigners like Margaret Sanger and philanthropists like, uh, like Catherine McCormick. And the impact of their work is still felt to this very day. These people and, and, and many others besides were instrumental in the development of the oral contraceptive pill, usually known today, of course, as just the pill. The pill was tested and trialed throughout the 1950s and then finally approved for public use in the, in the United States in 1960 and many other places around the world followed suit quickly thereafter. And it finally gave women a private, reliable and relatively safe way to control their own reproduction. It's also linked, of course, with the development of the intrauterine device, the IUD, some of which you also use hormones to prevent pregnancies, just like the pill. But the pill was, in effect... The very thing that 19th century feminists had campaigned for when they opposed the condom. But this was just the beginning of its impact. Not only were women now completely uh, able to take complete responsibility for their own, for their own reproduct- reproductive choices by, uh, by having access to the pill here. It changed society forever on a much broader scale than you may initially realize because it changed society forever shaping the role that women had in in a rapidly modernizing world, particularly in an economic sense. With the advent of the pill, women married later. They were more likely to go on to attain higher education. They pursued longer careers. They turned traditional economic gender roles on their heads. It changed everything. It really did. And while it's possible, of course, to ascribe the progress of society and the slow but steady closure of things like the gender gap to any number of other things, The development and the proliferation of the pill was enormously significant in the campaign for more equal footing between men and women. Today, the pill is one of the most popular contraceptive methods worldwide, alongside IUDs, condoms, and, for that matter, the most popular form of contraception, which is tubal ligation, 
or, in other words, voluntary sterilization. According to the UN, 24% of women of reproductive age between the ages of, uh, of 15 and 49 have had their tubes tied. It's most common throughout Central and, and Latin America and in India, whereas uh, throughout most of the rest of the world, condoms and, and hormonal contraceptives are, are more common. These are the methods that dominate modern birth control. These are the technologies that we have in the 21st century, in addition, of course, to things like abortion, which, as I mentioned, is still a hotly contested issue even today in many parts of the world. And it, it, this overview that we've had here today, that what we've talked about, it really does go to show that women have had a bloody rough time of it. And I mean, look, this isn't anything new. This is something that's very well known and it's something that's applicable to every area of history and more or less every period of history as, as well. Women have not had an easy time of it. But when we look at the history of birth control, when we look at the, at the history of reprodu- reproductive rights, it really does show into very stark, it, shows into, it throws into stark relief the challenges that women have had to, the battles that women have had to, have had to fight over the centuries, over the millennia. And even today, of course, it's nowhere where it, where it should be. Women have had to fight for reproductive rights and control over their own bodies for centuries, for millennia. And what we've talked about today just, just goes to show how undeniably true that is. Thousands of years ago, women were using every tool at their disposal to control their reproduction. And, you know, while today we have a giggle about crocodile turds and the old squat and sneeze, it, put things in, it puts things in perspective to think that this is a battle that women have been fighting for quite literally thousands and thousands of years. Today, we like to think that we live in an enlightened age where access to technology like the pill allows women to live fuller and freer lives than ever before. But we don't need to look too far into the lessons of history and examine the trials and tribulations of the generations of women who came before to recognise that these issues are not behind us and that there is still so much more to be done. As birth control has improved, so has society. It's undeniable. And so I very much hope that the outraged moralists and the backwards-facing traditionalists can learn the lessons of history and ensure that the history of birth control doesn't stagnate, but continues to develop and continues to grow and improve the lives of future generations of women for many, many years to come. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the history of birth control. And uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I know I try to sort of maintain this carefully cultivated PG image on this uh, on this podcast, and I hope it doesn't throw it too far out the window. But still, a very interesting, uh, a very interesting series of lessons to learn. Not just you know on a on a sort of practical historical level, but also. Uh, sort of thinking about how uh, this is very much history in motion. This isn't a finished story by any means. And the history of birth control is something that is not a closed chapter. It's a chapter that's still still very much being written. Anyway, that is that for another week of Half House History. I hope you've enjoyed uh, this dumb podcast and, and certainly thank you for hanging out and listening to it. If you want to get in touch with the show, please do. Halfhousehistory.net. There's a contact form there. I, I regret to say that I'm not able to, to reply to every email I get these days. There are just too many of them. Uh, so, But I do I do read every single one and I appreciate them all. So thank you to everyone who's sending in topic ideas or feedback or anything else that, uh, any, you know, any other thoughts or, or feelings you have about the, the podcast. It is always great to hear from people. Um, if you want to uh, follow the show on iTunes or Spotify or, or the uh, the podcast provider of your choice, of course, there are there are limitless ways to subscribe. You can go to halfhousehistory.net and find links to uh, to all the popular ones there. You can pick your pipe. 
And of course, if you want to support the show on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash half history. Uh, a range of benefits, uh, different tiers available too. If you want access to uncut episodes, listen to me burp and fart and, and, and flood my lines and all that sort of stuff, or even become an executive producer of the show to the, at the very highest tiers. And thank you, a special thank you, of course, to all of, uh, of my Patreon supporters. I, I, I can't really properly express how much it means to... Uh, to have all of you at my back, so thank you very much. And of course, to just the bog-standard Commodore Garden listener as well, thank you very much for, uh, for for spending some time with me each week as we as we have a chat about something. And uh, be sure to tell your friends, tell your enemies, and tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. It certainly does help me get those numbers up. Got to get those numbers up. Rookie numbers in this game. Anyway, we're going to close the show out, of course, with a question posed on Reddit. We've talked a lot about uh, various forms of birth control, and we talked a lot about the condom today. And as a result, we have this question coming to us from Azarius59, who asks... What was the point of the Trojan War? Were their condoms really worth all that trouble?